Hello and welcome to episode six of the HSF Banking Litigation Podcast. You know the drill by now. I'm David Barr and I'm joined by our leading light in all things banking, uh, Kerry Morgan, our Banking Litigation PSL. And we're joined this month by Scott Warren, one of the associates here in the Department of Warm Welcome to you, Scott. Uh, To get us started then, we have a misrepresentation case and the Court of Appeal have been looking at the test for fraudulent misrep. Can you talk us through this decision, Scott? Absolutely. So I'm going to talk about BV Nederlandser and Rembrandt. Now, this case did not arise in a banking context. In fact, it was about a Netherlands-based egg supplier. But misrepresentation is a common cause of action in claims against banks, particularly in mis-selling claims. And in this case, the Court of Appeal critically analysed the test for fraudulent misrepresentation. So the particular point that the court considered was the requirement to show that the claimant was induced to enter into the contract by the representation. Or, to put it another way, that the claimant relied on the representation when entering into the contract. So, for all forms of misrepresentation, the party on the wrong end of that representation has the burden of showing that it induced them to enter into the contract. But, in cases of fraudulent misrep, there will be a presumption that the representee was induced. It was on this presumption that the court clarified two key points. The first is that the presumption is one of fact and not of law, which means it's possible for the other party, which in these claims would usually be the bank, to rebut the presumption. The second point is what precisely must be proved. And here, the court said that a representee must prove that they were materially influenced by the representation, in the sense that it was actively present in their mind when entering into the contract. Uh, That does sound a little bit obscure, Scott. (laughs) I know what you mean, but basically the court didn't like the ambiguity in the word might in formulations of the test based on the representee showing that he might have acted differently but for the fraudulent misrep. So it opted for a test based on the actual state of the representee's mind at the time rather than based on a counterfactual scenario. Well, it sounds like that decision is definitely worth a read if you have a fraudulent misrep case. It is indeed, as it's easy to see how a case could turn on this sort of distinction in terminology. And uh, we do have a blog post on this case, and I think the link will be in the show notes. Yeah, that's right. Now from uh, eggs to ISDA, I'm sure we've just missed out on Easter to make a pun there, but uh, somehow keeping a Dutch connection, Kerry, you've got uh, two cases on contractual interpretation for us. The first one... Um, I think is a Court of Appeal case looking at negative interest under the ISDA uh, 1995 Credit Support Annex. Um, And unless I'm mistaken, this is the case you've chosen for our deep dive this month. Yes, that's right. So sticking to the Dutch theme, we have the Court of Appeal's decision in State of the Netherlands and Deutsche Bank, uh, which I've chosen for the deep dive this month. So some of our listeners may have been following this case. It answers a question which has been vexing the derivatives market for a while now, um, and that's whether so-called negative interest is payable under the ISDA 1995 Credit Support Annex. So in a nutshell, the High Court said that it was not, that negative interest was not payable, and now the Court of Appeal has agreed, although for different reasons, which are pretty interesting from a contractual interpretation perspective in themselves. So a bit of background to put this in context for those who are not familiar with the decision 
or with the CSA, the Netherlands and the bank entered into a number of derivative transactions off the back of a framework comprising the 1992 ISDA and the 1995 CSA. It was agreed under the CSA that where the Netherlands had a net credit exposure to the bank, the bank had to provide credit support in the form of cash collateral. And if that happened, then the Netherlands would then pay interest on the collateral to the bank. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, The Netherlands did in fact have a net credit exposure to the bank, and the bank posted collateral to the Netherlands. But, and this is what's caused all the problems, at some point after the bank posted collateral, the applicable interest rate fell below zero. I see. So by negative interest, you mean interest payable by the bank on its own money that it handed over as collateral to the Netherlands. Although that sounds a little counterintuitive. Yeah, yeah. although I think the state's commercial rationale was that it was effectively sitting on a wasting asset because of the negative interest environment. So the question was whether the transferor of the collateral, i.e. the bank, had to pay negative interest on that collateral to the Netherlands. And as I said, both the High Court and the Court of Appeal said that negative interest was not payable. The High Court's decision was based on the view that if negative interest was payable, then it would have been spelled out in the agreement, which it wasn't. But the Court of Appeal essentially agreed with that conclusion, but thought the reasoning was too simplistic. And we have an e-bulletin on this decision, which I suggest you read if you're interested in a more detailed analysis, um, which was conducted by the Court of Appeal. And we don't really have time in this podcast to cover it all. Do uh, you, you want to just pick out sort of one, one highlight, um, if you like, just to, to sort of take us through that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So there's an interesting point on um, collateral construction more generally that I mentioned at the outset. So... As an aid to interpretation, the Court of Appeal relied on various documents produced by ISDA, including a best practice statement. Although importantly, this best practice statement was issued after the CSA was amended in 2010. So the statement said in express terms that interest rates under the CSA should be floored at zero and not drop into negative um, figures. So you can see why the bank would want to rely upon it. Um, And the Court of Appeal recognised that it would not normally be possible to look at post-contractual documentation as being indicative of factual matrix. But here the court said that the best practice statement was significant as it showed ISDA's thinking around the time of the CSA. So the approach is quite interesting in terms of the weight given to ISDA's own view of the documentation and that the court did not feel constrained by the fact that this view was not voiced by ISDA until a later date, i.e. after the contract was entered into. So I think it demonstrates the court's respect for ISDA's opinion and the market generally. Um, And then my second case on contractual interpretation is CFH and Merrill Lynch. And this one relates to a claim arising out of the Swiss franc being rather suddenly depegged from the euro in 2015. Um, Could you just... I've not heard of de-pegging. It sounds painful, but... (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. De-pegging. So um, sometimes a government will operate an exchange rate policy where it links or pegs its currency to another in order to stabilise the exchange rate. So here the Swiss franc was pegged to the euro for a number of years, um, and then the Swiss National Bank suddenly announced that it would no longer hold the fixed exchange rate in 2015. 
This caused the value of the Swiss franc to soar and it caused a fair amount of disruption in the FX market, which led to this particular claim by an FX broker against the bank it had entered into various spot FX trades with. So essentially, the broker attempted to shift losses caused by those market forces to the bank, saying that the bank should have retrospectively adjusted the prices of its transactions with the broker because they were automatically liquidated at a price below the official low. Um, All the broker said that the bank should have cancelled the trades altogether. So the broker's argument, uh, it hinged on a suite of alleged express or implied contractual obligations and tortious duties. Uh, which the court completely rejected, um, and it granted summary judgment in favour of the bank. One point that the court particularly emphasised was the significance of the ISDA master agreement, seems to be a theme today, um, Mm -hmm. which was governing the specific FX transactions, which it said prevailed over the bank's standard terms and conditions. It's interesting the court was willing to grant summary judgment on this. It's good to see that in an appropriate case, the court will take a robust approach. Yeah, absolutely, and save the time and costs of a full trial. Mm. Um, So we should have an e-bulletin out on this decision soon. Interesting stuff. Um, Now, Scott, costs might not uh, seem the most scintillating topic, but it is always hugely important um, as part of any litigation. You've been looking at a couple of decisions which are important in this area, haven't you? Indeed I have, and starting off with the aptly named Davy and Money, here the High Court found that a third-party funder was liable to cover all of the costs that the defendant had incurred in successfully defending a claim. So what's important about this case is really what it tells us about the Arkin cap. Um, And that is what exactly the Arkin cap? So it comes from a Court of Appeal decision bearing the same name, in which the court said that the adverse costs recoverable from a funder should be capped at the amount that they actually funded the claimant with. So here the High Court was essentially said that that principle, uh, being that cap, doesn't automatically apply in every case where there are commercial funders. The court has a broad discretion to decide just how much the funder is going to have to cough up. Dismissing the argument that this would put funders off in the future, the judge said that if it caused funders to take a closer interest in the litigation and keep a close eye on costs, then that wouldn't be such a bad thing and wouldn't be contrary to access to justice or any other public policy. We have a blog post on this one too, and again, the link in the show notes. So turning to my next costs case, it's Willers and Joyce. This is one that reminds us of the need for caution when referring to WP communications in subsequent correspondence that isn't marked as WP. Here, the court said that some correspondence that was marked as without prejudice saves us to costs, but which described the conduct of prior without prejudice negotiations was admissible in an application for costs. Although the WP rule applied to the negotiations, the court said that the parties had agreed to vary the WP status of those negotiations by referring to them in the later WP savers costs correspondence. Always worth exercising caution when referring to WP communications in later correspondence, and more detail on this in the blog post, for which there is a link in the show notes. Definitely worth keeping in mind. Um, and Kerry, you're going to wrap up with a just a brief mention of a, an important Supreme Court decision from the perspective of multinational companies. Yeah, that's right, David. So just a quick one on the Supreme Court's recent decision in Vedanta. 
In a nutshell, the Supreme Court said that drafting and implementing group-wide policies may be enough to found a parent company duty of care. So this decision increases the litigation risk faced by English-domiciled parent companies in respect of alleged wrongdoing by overseas subsidiaries, particularly those based in jurisdictions where access to justice may be an issue. So definitely worth just being aware of that one. Brilliant. Um, and, and that's it for this month. Thank you to Kerry and to Scott for joining us this month. Uh, as ever, do check out those show notes for the various blog posts mentioned today. But until next time, thanks to you for listening. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.